Hey, my name is Jensen, one of the servant leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope you can lean in and enjoy this message. I, I want to begin uh, a new series this weekend called The Spirit Within You. In fact, this series is actually going to take us into another series. It's kind of a cousin series to what we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks called Why Church Matters. And both of these series are really going to be a study in some regards throughout the, through the book of Acts as we look at the early church and really lean into, to the best that we can tell, what is church supposed to look like today? Um, one of the more interesting and fun conversations that I get to engage in on a regular basis is with pastors as they're just really thinking about what's the role of the church. Because within the last 15 or 20 years or so, there's been a deconstruction of church, some healthy, some really unhealthy. We'll talk about that in the, in the, in the series to come in about four weeks from now. But to set some of what we're talking about up, I want us to stand to our feet in honor of reading God's word together. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 kicks off the genesis of the church, the very beginning of what we know today to be the modern church is written by a man named Luke, who is also responsible for writing the gospel of Luke. In fact, the gospel account that we see is the third book of the New Testament that Luke wrote. This was really part B of that exact same book. In fact, some scholars actually believe that it was all written at the exact same time as well. And it was written to a man by the name of Theophilus. And that's how Luke starts out. He says, in my first book, I told you about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up into heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, that he was who he said that he was. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, here it is, on the day of Pentecost... Oh, that's not it. There it is. He commanded them. He said, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift that he promised. And that's, that's really important for us as 21st century, predominantly suburbanites in here to lean into what is happening here in Acts chapter one. Jesus is explicitly saying, I'm sending you a gift he says, I'm promising that this gift is going to come. And he tells you, he likens this gift similarly to the way that John the Baptist baptized people in water. And he says, soon you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In fact, fast forward then 40 days and we pick up in Acts chapter two, verse one. It says, then on the day of Pentecost, all the believers, all the Christians were meeting together in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting. Now, before we go any further, don't get caught up in the how of Pentecost here. Don't even get caught up too much in the details of what took place here. I heard one scholar says that the day of Pentecost wasn't a repetitive act. It was rather a perpetuation of something that already started. In other words, sometimes certain traditions of faith can get really caught up in the details of what happened here in Acts chapter 2, and they missed out on the grander, greater gift that was given to them here in Acts chapter 2, that being what we'll see here in a moment, the Holy Spirit. It says, then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. They began speaking other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. I want to share today from a message entitled Clearing the Path for Pentecost. And if you're newer to church and that sounds really, really churchy, 
You could just write down this title if you're taking notes, Clearing the Path for the Holy Spirit. And over the next few weeks, again, just hang with us. I've said this about so many series before, but I don't say this about every series. But when I do, I, I, I really mean it. That this series is going to build one week upon another. So it's imperative that we build this foundation today. And we're going to have some questions at the end of today. You're going to have some, yeah, but what about, and yeah, but Jordan, what if? You're going to have those questions, but just hang with me over the next, what I believe is going to be nine weeks, possibly 11. We'll see kind of where we land here as we continue to journey through this together. But we're going to talk today, let's kick this off, clearing the path of Pentecost. Let's pray one more time. God, we pray that you, through your spirit, would be welcomed here and that you would open our eyes and our ears and that we would see and know you more clearly. In Jesus' name. Amen. And heal our hearts for those of us who are mourning the loss of the U.S. Women's National Team. Everybody can be seated. (laughs) Speaking of the U.S. Women's National Team, (laughs) anybody been into the World Cup lately? Any any fans in here? Okay, just me and Amy Bull. Thank you, Amy. Just two of us. That's awesome. Brenna, too. Very cool. I've been into anything on the international stage I get really into. I just like competition in general, and so I've been leaning in. My wife, however, has not, so we've competed for television times at certain really odd hours of of the day. And it's funny, though, because the U.S. Women's National Team, according to the standard of the world, was very successful in the sense that they made it to the top 16 teams in the entire world. That's pretty awesome. I don't know about many of you, but I'm not sure that anybody in here could say, I'm one of the 16 best at what I do in the entire world. Like, I can't say that. I'd venture to say that most of us in here can say that. And yet, their defeat this morning has actually now deemed them to be unsuccessful. They were ranked number one in the world, and as a result, everybody thought it's it's World Cup or bust for them. This idea of success is, um, is an interesting thing because no matter what field you find yourself in, the vocation you have, or even just as a mom, dad, a friend, a student, there are things that you are pursuing predominantly because someone has told you, or at least you've been formed to the idea that that thing is what will make you successful. And in many ways, our identity even becomes wrapped up in that thing. Well, as a church, a lot of times people misunderstand and consider the benchmark for success in church services to be more about church attendance, more about how many people are showing up than it is about the movement of the Spirit of God in people's lives. In fact, I'll pull the curtain back for you and just let you in on whenever there's a pastor's gathering in our city, almost always the first question that people ask when you're introduced to someone or you are introducing yourself to someone is people will say, pastors will say, oh, it's great to meet you. How many are you running? Everybody wants to know how big is your church? In fact, oftentimes it's your church size attendance based off of how old your church is that will determine whether you get in the door or you don't. And that's unfortunate in my opinion because I just don't think that that's what success is intended to be. And I certainly don't believe that's what Jesus ever dreamt of when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. There was an entertainment model of church that got introduced to the capital C church somewhere in the 80s and really became widespread in the early 90s. And this entertainment model of church alleviated some of the boredom that was taking place that the church had become stereotypically known for during a long season, several decades of time. And that was a good thing. 
It was a good thing to help engage people more and use and redeem some of the pieces of culture to help engage people into the message of Christ. But the downstream negative effect of this is that it filled our churches with self-focused consumers rather than self-sacrificing servants who are learning to be attuned to the voice of the Holy Spirit. In fact, today, the average person attends a church for 2.9 years, just slightly less than three years. And once they've consumed what they can from that church, they look for a new church to attend to consume what they can from that church too. And again, when we say it like that, all of us, especially if you grew up in church, are probably like, yeah, I don't think that's good. But a lot of us model and even live our lives in the way in which we engage with the capital C church, the people of God. We live our lives mostly around kind of getting what we can so that we can kind of be as, as, as you know, spiritually filled as we possibly can based off of the programs and the people who attend our, our churches. And here's what I've discovered, and here's what you know too that most of the church growth that happens in America today, not in every country, but definitely here, it can happen even if you remove God. A.W. Tozer once said that if you remove the Holy Spirit from the modern church today, 98% of what they were doing would still be doing. If you remove the Holy Spirit from the New Testament church in the book of Acts, 98% of what they're doing, they couldn't do anymore. There's something wrong with, with that. Church growth can happen even without God because if you just combine a, a, a kind of an above average speaker on a platform and with an above average band and a, a fun and clean kids ministry, a few creative elements and people to connect every once in a while, the church will grow. People will keep coming. It, it, it's, it's, it's inevitable that people won't stop. The crowd will continue to, to grow bigger and bigger. And the challenge with that though is That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is actively working and moving in the lives of the people who are coming. Have you noticed that people are more likely to describe how good a band was or how connected they felt to a message on a Sunday morning than they are to describe the one who they came to worship to begin with? I do it. And I know you do too. I'm not stepping on your toes this morning intentionally. I'm stepping on all of our toes this morning intentionally because I just have this sense that over the next nine weeks and really for the decades to come, there's more. There's more to church than what we've previously thought that there is. There's more to what God wants us, what's to do through us rather than what we previously understood him to do. And too often we make the assumption that whatever works in church must be blessed by God. In other words, if a technique gets the building filled and the bills paid, then it must be blessed by God. But nowhere in the scriptures did God ever ask anybody to have a large church. He only ever called people to proclaim his work through his word. And as a result, he would then anoint people with the power of the Holy Spirit to produce the results that only he can build. And here's a really important point right here. When we receive the Spirit of God and do the work of God, God's way, we build God's church in a way that God intended for his church to be built. 
The church then is no longer built around a person or a program or a system or an idea or an ideology. It's built around God and his word empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. And if all of that just seems a little theoretical and we need to kind of bring this plane back down to ground level, just hang with me over the next few weeks because I believe that we will. Because anybody can draw a crowd. Taylor Swift is drawing crowds that are like next level right now. But only the Holy Spirit can build a church. And we should never confuse a crowd with a church. And that's what we want to differentiate over the next several weeks together. Because it's the Holy Spirit who builds the church that Jesus gave his life for. And so I want to ask this question this morning. Who is the Holy, who is the Holy Spirit? Because for a lot of us, the Holy Spirit, as we referenced a year ago in a similar series to this, this series is in large part, part B of what we discussed last August. I'm going to give us just enough kind of foundational elements and teaching from where we left off last year to kind of ensure that we are all on the same page moving together this morning. We're going to go a bit deeper and further over the next few weeks than we did last year. So we got to ask ourselves, though, to begin, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, first and foremost, you've got to remember, you've got to catch this deep within yourself. If you're taking notes, write this down no matter how simple this may sound. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is not a force to capture. He is a person to know. And depending on your faith tradition or background, the church in which you were raised in, you may have seen the Spirit of God or heard of the Spirit of God in a way that I often would hear the Spirit of God referenced almost more like he was something to catch than he was someone to know. In fact, it's not much different than knowing Jesus or knowing God the Father. And I love what A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Counselor, when he described the Spirit of God. He said, he is not enthusiasm. He is not someone getting really excited in a worship set. He is not courage. He is not energy. He may give some of those things at times, but he is not those things. He's not the personification of all good qualities like Jack Frost is the personification of cold weather. Actually, the Holy Spirit is, a pers- is not the personification of anything. He's a person, the same as you are a person, but not material substance. He is individuality. He, has, he is one being and not another. He has will and intelligence. I love this last part. He has hearing, knowledge, sympathy, ability, to love and see and think. He can hear, speak, desire, grieve, and rejoice. Why? Because he's a person. And we have been invited to know the Spirit as intimately as what you have been invited to know your spouse or your best friend. In fact, I would even say more so. Now, again, we often misplace the Spirit of God and assume like he's a lesser version of God the Father, a lesser version of Jesus Christ, when in reality, both the, fa- both the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equally God and always working in perfect unison with one another. In fact, more times than not, when you see, this, when you see God referenced in the Old Testament in particular, it's almost always a direct reference to all three of them working together, hand in hand. See, they are in perfect unison with one another, and yet they all have equally unique and individual roles while always being on the same page, moving forward together. In fact, side note, which we'll discuss more in the weeks to come, the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is actually a representation of the same type of unity that we are to have today as the body of Christ. 
which when we dive more into to the weeks to come, seems so radical. In fact, I think it is one of the more radical teachings of the New Testament, the way the church is actually supposed to operate like a family. Not like a crowd, not like just like a gathering of people who all worship the same God, but have all these differences about them, but actually like the Father is in unison with the Son and the Son with the Spirit and all of them working together because it's the Father who sent the Son. It's the Son who teaches us even today through the Spirit. It's the Spirit who unites us with the Father. Likewise, it's the Father who works through the Spirit even today. It's the Spirit who empowered Jesus in the flesh and as we'll see here in a moment, empowers us even today or at least desires to empower us today. Day, and it's the Son who revealed the Father to us when he was in the flesh. Now let's take this even one step further. The Father sent Jesus, and also Jesus was imparting and completing his work in us through the Spirit. Now the Spirit empowered, conceived, led, and filled Jesus when he was living on this earth in human flesh, blood, and bone. And it was Jesus who did everything he did to serve the Father. They're always working together. Now let me take this even one step further. Now hang with me here, because this next part is important for us to capture. Jesus, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, now if you're newer to church, this is where things get weird, okay? And I admit that. But I'm going to go ahead and just go out on a limb and say pretty much everything you believe, even if it has nothing to do with God, is equally as weird. (laughs) We all have faith in something. Some of us just have faith in faith. But for us as a community, as followers of Jesus, we have faith in God. He is our firm foundation. And so when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, how did Mary conceive Jesus well, he was born as a result of the Holy Spirit. That word begotten is a word we don't use in our English language today. It just means he was conceived by way of the Holy Spirit. Let's go a little bit further. Jesus led a holy, spotless life and offered himself to God through the working of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was anointed for ministry, which means service by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit in all of his movements. Jesus was taught by the Spirit who rested upon him. The Spirit of God was the source of all of Jesus' wisdom. Do you see a theme here? Jesus spoke the words of God as revealed to him by the Spirit. Disregard all of the weird other stuff that's going on on the screen right now. Just hang with me. Jesus gave commandments to his disciples through the Holy Spirit. Jesus did miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, oops. We got one more. Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. The theme here is that Jesus would not have done what he had done at any point in his life had it not been for the Holy Spirit. Now catch what I said, because semantics right here are really important. I did not say that he could not do what he did. I said he would not do what he had done. Philippians chapter 2 tells us, we don't have time to get into it, that Jesus stripped himself of all of his godlike authority and he came in the likeness of man. Why? Because that's what he had to do. Different teaching for a different day. So if that raises a bunch of questions, I understand. We just don't have time to get into it right now. But here's what we do need. He would not have done what he had done separate from having been empowered by, filled by, and in relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. And the invitation for me and for you is to do the same. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, Romans 8, 11 says, lives and dwells in the believer. Those who have professed Jesus Christ to be 
to be Lord. In fact, this is the reason why Jesus, what we just read right here, those last eight scriptures or thoughts, it's the reason why Jesus got so excited in John chapter 16 when he said, very truly I tell you, it is for your good. <laughs> Think about this for a moment. That was a weird laugh. <laughs> and I didn't mean to do that. That sounded weird. Um, anyway, moving on. <laughs> he said, <laughs> you know sometimes things come out. <laughs> anyway. He said, and, and catch this. Think about how radical this is, what Jesus said. Think about how his disciples would probably be confused by what Jesus is saying right here. He said, guys, guys, gentlemen, it's good for you. I've got good news for you. It's good for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate, another name for the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I do go, I'll send him because Jesus knew that everything that he accomplished was through having been empowered by the Spirit of God. And as a result, he's saying, hey guys, hey guys, hey, hey, I've got good news. You know all the stuff that you saw me do? Yeah, yeah, Jesus. You know all the ways in which you saw me love people who are really hard to love? Yeah, yeah, Jesus. You know the things that I taught that people were like, man, he teaches with an authority that I just haven't seen before. Yeah, Jesus, we, we know, yeah. All of that was done through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Wow, Jesus, that's awesome. Oh no, guys, guys, it gets better, it gets better. Better? Yeah, it gets better. I'm sending him to you. What? Yeah, I'm sending, I mean, he's, he's gonna live in you. That's cool. Um, yeah, but guys, one more thing. I'm gonna go though, but the Holy Spirit's gonna come. I, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit to you. Can we just have both? No, no, guys, it's better. It's better. See, I'm just one man, and, and I needed to be one man in order to accomplish the mission, the mission that my father sent me to accomplish. But the Holy Spirit, he's gonna dwell in all believers. And so, so it's better that I, that I go. A few years back, roughly four years ago, I, I was eating at a restaurant with my family. And most of our food had come except for one plate still hadn't arrived yet. And, and so as we're waiting for this plate, we decided, let's just go ahead and pray and, and then we can get to eating. And just as we were finishing up the prayer, we weren't quite done, just, just quickly thanking God for our meal. I mean, it's probably like a 10, 15 second prayer. Our server came and dropped off the last plate. And it was that like weird, awkward moment. Anybody else know what I'm talking about at a restaurant when that happens? And thank you, Jeff, for agreeing with me here and not making me feel so alone in this moment. But it was just that awkwardness. And I was even slightly embarrassed. And my embarrassment felt unsettling to me. And nothing happened. The interaction wasn't actually weird. The server didn't say anything. He just politely dropped off the meal and kind of went on his way. And I didn't think a whole lot about that interaction until a few mornings later. It was early, and I was just spending some time in reading the scriptures and, and praying before my family woke up. And, and again, I wasn't thinking about that moment at that restaurant, but just this, this quick thought came up. Like, like, why did I feel that way? Why, why did I feel awkward? I didn't even ask the question out loud. And as soon as that question popped into my attention or came to my attention, I felt this, this impression as though the Holy Spirit was just speaking to me and kind of the words just kind of came to my mind. And, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, because you don't have a deep relationship with me. You felt that way because you don't have a deep relationship with me. You can tell people a lot about me, 
And you rely on being able to convince people that I am who I really am. And that's why in that moment when you didn't have an opportunity to convince that server that what you're doing is legit and it shouldn't be awkward because God is God and he is real. <laughs> like, you felt uncomfortable because you don't have a deep relationship with me. I felt so convicted in that moment because I was like, but I'm a pastor. <laughs> and I think the reality is, is the Apostle Paul referenced this spot on when he said in 2 Timothy 1, I know whom I have believed. Paul didn't say, I know about the one I believed. He said, I truly know the one in whom I believe. So the question for us today is, can we say the same? Can we with confidence echo that exact same sentiment? One of the great tragedies in the church of our time is that the Holy Spirit has become a familiar stranger to so many of us. The Holy Spirit is a little bit like that urban legend. Like I've heard about him, but has anybody actually seen the Yeti? You know what I mean? The Holy Spirit, I think in many ways, is like that mutual friend that you've been told so much about. And finally you get to meet them and they sound awesome. And you're out to dinner with all of your friends and this one mutual friend. And suddenly the rest of your friends stand up, exit the table, go use the restroom. And it's just you and that one mutual friend. And as cool as they sounded when they were described to you for years prior to that first moment you met them, suddenly everything became really awkward. You're like, I was comfortable with him at church, but now it's just me and him. I'm not sure what to do. And also then for many of us, he may not even be a familiar stranger. He's just someone that we're a bit fearful of. The Holy Spirit in a lot of churches today has even become very divisive. There's a division. You've probably seen this to a certain extent. At least some of you have. There's a division between Bible churches and Holy Spirit churches. Between churches that preach with excellence and intellect and thoughtfulness, but the Spirit isn't mentioned or experienced. There's churches where the Holy Spirit is real and present and sought after, but the Bible is minimized as simply a pep talk. And I think that grieves Jesus so much because Jesus spoke against that exact sentiment when he said, I'm going to ask the Father who'll give you another advocate, again, the Holy Spirit, to help you and be with you forever. And then he gives him this nickname. He's the Spirit of Truth. Calls in the spirit of truth. That's an important term because we must never pit the idea of the Holy Spirit against the Bible and say, well, you have all of your doctrine and your truth, but we have the Holy Spirit and I have experience. The Holy Spirit will always speak in direct relationship with the authority of the scripture at heart. He'll never tell you anything. He'll never, he'll never inspire you to do anything separate from what the scriptures give us instruction to do. And so the two are never pitted against each other, but rather the exact opposite. The two are always working hand in hand with one another. In fact, I just want us to understand this as a community, as we continue to journey together as a family for the next few decades to come, that it's the Bible and the Holy Spirit. It's teaching and experiencing. It's both and. Furthermore, it's thinking and feeling. We must never pit these two things against one another and say, well, you're extra and I'm introvert. Well, you're a Holy Spirit church and you're a Bible church. No, the, they're always working together. And the dichotomy is actually the thing that, that our enemy himself wants us to lean into. There is no dichotomy here. 
A.W. Tozer, once again, he said that there is no other doctrine separate from the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that Satan so vehemently opposes. Because he knows that if we know the Spirit of God, the church, as we know it today, looks entirely different and way, way better. Going on, it's, it's the gospel accompanied by signs and wonders. It's exegeting the text, understanding the context of the scriptures, and sharing a word of prophecy. It's moving on, bearing with God through suffering, and being delivered by God from suffering. And lastly, it's contemplative, meaning we think about it, we reflect on it, we meditate on it, we lean into, into it, and it's embracing the full gift set of charismatic ministry, which the Spirit of God still moves and lives and does today. Now hear me, so much of what I'm giving us right now is just context. And my fear today as we journey together is that I don't have enough time to give you all the context that I desire to give you. But if some of what I've shared with you this morning, depending on your church background, some of you do not need to hear this. I know that. And if you don't, you can just sit back, relax, take a big deep breath, and just lean into what may be more relevant to you here in a moment. But some of you need this. For some of you, everything I'm talking about scares you a bit. Because you've seen churches or ministers abuse their influence in the name of the Holy Spirit. And if that's you, I can relate really, really well with you. Because for a small period of time, I was a part of a similar church that really leaned into what I began to look at, sort of like this name it and claim it mentality. And I just thought, man, if that's what it means to operate in the gifts of the Spirit, I don't want any parts of that. In fact, for several years... I began to go in from one ditch and just found myself in a completely different ditch. And it wasn't until Ethos just started. I mean, it was a few months into Ethos. We're going to celebrate five years here in just a couple months. And I remember about a year in, maybe not quite, I began to realize that I was living in large part a lot of my life, or at least my Christian life, with an unspoken 11th commandment in mind. And this commandment was simply, thou shalt not do at all what others do badly. <laughs> and I bet that some of you have lived in accordance with that same commandment. You've seen some things and you thought, I don't want anything to do with that. And so you threw the baby out with the bathwater too. And I had to wrestle with this question. And I came back to this just a couple weeks ago as I forgot that I was even wrestling with this a few years ago, and I had to ask myself, will I justify disobedience to what Scripture tells us to do because someone else badly abused what they called a spiritual gift? Will we, as a church, will we do the, do the same? Jesus said in John 14, 12, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And for centuries, there's been a debate over what Jesus meant here. Was he talking about quality of works or quantity of works? I don't know. I'm not a New Testament scholar, but I do know this with certainty, that Jesus didn't mean less and not as good things as what you've seen him doing. And to fixate on that part is actually to miss the whole point. The key word here, the operative word here is whoever. Who is the offer of the Spirit for? Whoever believes in him and receives him. Jesus doesn't ask what denomination you're from, what church tradition you grew up in, whether you're Armenian or Calvin, 
whether you even know what that means. He doesn't quantify any of this. And if we put ourselves in the shoes of those first early Christians, both men and women, who were filled with the Spirit in that day in Acts chapter 2, and the church began, you got to consider this fact that they didn't even know half of what you and I know. And yet, they received the Spirit with earnest and longing and saw the church do and grow in ways that few of us just think, well, that was just for then, but it's not for now. To which I'd say, it never stopped. In fact, if we were to take this just a bit further, I love what Jim Cimbala said in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, when he wrote, whether we call ourselves classical evangelicals, traditionalists, fundamentalists, Pentecostals, charismatics, we all have to face our lack of real power and call out for a fresh infilling of the Spirit. We need the fresh wind of God to awaken us from our lethargy. We must not hide any longer behind some theological argument. The days are too dark. The days are too dangerous. And if we would just consider for a moment to slow down long enough, we'd say, yeah, I I think Pastor Jim is correct. And so now, back to our theme text as we close this out of the next eight to ten minutes together. It says in Acts chapter two, and everyone who was present was filled with that promise, that gift, the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean then to be filled with the Spirit? Again, depending on your church background or the tradition in which you grew up in, some people say, is this like a second blessing? Subsequent to salvation? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Of which I'd say, no, it's not. I love what Simon Ponsonby says in his book, More, a fantastic book, when he describes what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It's so much better than most of us have even considered before. I'll just be the first to admit that over the last, in particular, two years, as I've been leaning more and more into, Lord, let us be a spirit-filled church, a church that is on fire as a result of having been filled with your spirit on a continual basis. And just leaning into what does it even mean and just praying and longing for more of the spirit. Simon Ponsonby has been one of the guys who's just been so encouraging to my walk, in recent, my walk with Jesus in recent years. He said, it is a constantly repeatable and deepening experience of God's spirit who brings a greater revelation of the person in the work of Christ, a blazing love for Christ, a greater, more effective, empowering witness to Christ, and a transforming conformity to the character of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes, and what does he do? He sends us, and we're going to talk about this in the weeks to come. He sends us with gifts, some that seem like supernatural gifts, that feel like that only happens in Africa and third world countries, to which I'd say, no, it is to happen here too. Others of which are more natural gifts, gifts of service, gifts of administration, of which we so easily embrace and even call out and recognize in people, but some of the more supernatural gifts that we cannot deny are God and God alone, We often put on a shelf and think that's weird. No, come on, church. Almost everything we believe is weird. You're telling me that you believe that a virgin gave birth to a man as a form of a baby, then grew up and he died a sinless life on a cross so that you and I could put our faith in him and trust in him forever. Now you're forgiven of all your sins, but the Holy Spirit, that's weird. What? No, it's all a package deal. It comes all together. 
You get Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit too. And yet, I would offer this to us. We cannot deny in the scripture that there is more of the Spirit than what we have and are operating in right now. And I am well aware that Christians have disagreed for years as to whether or not the infilling of the Spirit is a part of salvation package or separate. And whether you and I believe, you know, the details of all of that, here's what we need to admit. We got to admit that in Acts chapter 2, it shows Christians experiencing a fresh infilling. And that's what we're after here. I remember the first time that I kissed my wife. Let me get into the details of that. More accurately, she kissed me. My in-laws are in here. They don't know that, but I'm telling you the truth right now. She came on to me first. But I remember the first time that I I kissed my wife. And I thank God, though, that it wasn't the last time that I kissed my wife. But catch this. If it had been the only time, it would have been a memorable moment. But thank God it wasn't a unique experience. It was just a memorable start of even greater things and deeper intimacy to come. And that's what it looks like to lean into a deeper relationship with the Spirit of God. And I believe in baptisms of the Spirit, plural. In fillings, plural, of the Spirit. Anointings, plural, of the Spirit. The ever-increasing, ever-deepening immersion into God. And we'll talk more about that in weeks to come and the ways in which the Spirit of God empowers us to be witnesses on the earth for his kingdom. Not to make your name great, which is where many of you have seen people get so off in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They use him just for, his, just for their own glory. And that's where they've given the church a bad name and a bad rap. But Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, don't be drunk with wine because that'll ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the original language, the Greek language, it actually references this phrase like this. Be being filled with the Spirit as though it's a continual sense. As if to imply that there's a deepening immersion in the spirit that we can continually experience. Sometimes it might feel like a supernatural moment where you're like, gosh, I cannot deny what happened. And other times it's this slow, gradual walk into the deep end of the pool. No matter how we get there, the goal is just to get into that deep end of the pool. And that's what we're after here. Because Paul is not denying that they have the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5, but they could have more or more accurately, that the Holy Spirit could have more of them. And that's what we want. God, we surrender to you so that you could have more of us. That's what we're after here. And listen, for some people, this is too much. It's too radical. You're like, man, I just, just kind of tell me how to have a better marriage and to raise my kids. And yeah, we do that stuff. We'll get into the weeds of some of those practical relationships because I believe that God desires for us to teach on that too. But for a lot of us, and I pray that for all of us, there's something even this weekend that just bursts within us, almost like, mm, I wasn't going to use this word, I'm going to, like impregnates us with a deeper longing to know the Spirit of God on a personal level and to be used by Him, not so that we could be known, but so that Christ could be made known on the earth in our time. That's what we're after here. And I confess that like Paul said in Ephesians 5, I desire more of the Spirit. I cannot explain to you how I just don't want to lead for the next 25 years just this casual church 
where all we're concerned about, you know the reason why we never share numbers and how large the church is growing? I've shared this before. Can I tell you like the deeper reason? Because I just don't care. I don't care anymore. We could explode into thousands and tens of thousands. You say, Jordan, is that true? You really don't care? Not if the spirit of God isn't present. If we aren't building his church his way, shame on us. Shame on me. I don't desire to stand before Jesus someday and him say, wow, whoo, people used to compliment you a lot. They were, they were really into your messages. No, I want him to say, thank you, son, for allowing the spirit to build my church his way, for getting out of the way, for not making this about someone or something, but for allowing this to really be about me. Because for me, and I would venture to say for so many of you too, you know that God's biggest dream isn't just that more people would fill our seats or even that we would plant more churches of which I believe we're called to do. But we know that God's dream is also to allow and to see the addicted truly find freedom. In a city with a history of drug abuse, a new reputation would emerge and people would say, man, like, there's some people who will pray for you and the spirit of God will transform your life. And what if God's dream for his church today includes people who are obsessed no longer with their appearance and what they look like in the mirror, but obsessed with what Jesus has said about them? What if it also includes being at a restaurant on Friday night with your friends and being at the food pantry on a Saturday morning or, or serving at a, a homeless shelter on a Tuesday night and in all three places you feel equally contented, equally alive, equally living on purpose? What if God's dream for his church today includes the terminally ill being wheeled into our church on Sunday morning because people heard that there are people who are actually bold enough to pray for people who are sick at Ethos Church and every once in a while it just happens to work. What if it includes simple words that pierce the hardest hearts and prayers that are prayed that are bold and tenacious and radical but they carry out the heart of our heavenly father and souls as a result are being saved because of the prayers being prayed. And people come to know Christ who others have said there's no way they would ever come to know Jesus. Their life is too far gone. What if it includes children coming back to him who parents have given up on and prayers have stopped being prayed? You gotta admit if it includes all of that, that sounds a whole lot more fun than what most of us have experienced in church. And so what does it require? Well, it requires saying, Holy Spirit, we want more of you. Samuel Chadwick, the Methodist minister and 20th century revivalist, he said, that which happened at Pentecost is the biggest thing that ever happened. And now the biggest question of all is this, has it happened to you and me? Have we allowed the Holy Spirit to have more of our lives, to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And I'm closing right here with just four quick points. What does it mean then to clear the path for Pentecost, for the Holy Spirit to come in our life? First thing you gotta recognize as we see in Acts chapter Two, is that it involves first and foremost repentance. Acts 2.38, right after Peter the apostle who preached that first message on the day of Pentecost, and over 3,000 people were added to the church, this was the message that he preached. He said, each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God. That's what repentance means. We're just turning to God, turning from something not so good to something immeasurably great. And then be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes to the repentant. Second thing, 
the Spirit comes to the obedient. In fact, that's what Jesus meant when he said in John 14, if you love me, obey my commandments and I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate, the Holy Spirit, and he'll never leave you. Obedience done in love. Not just out of religious routine, but obedience to God done in love for God is the key that unlocks the door to every deep spiritual experience in our life. There's no way around it. And third, how do we clear the path for Pentecost? Third, unity. This was a distinguishing characteristic of the early church. The church just being on the same page, making it all about Jesus, not about them. Making it all about caring for the poor first and not their own needs first. Making it all about seeing the mission of God and the kingdom of God expand into the dark places of the world, not just kind of making sure their own life is, is prospering. In fact... I charge us right now as the pastor of this church, whether I'm your pastor or not, maybe you go to another church, you're just here visiting. But as the pastor of this church, I charge you right now that if you hear anybody in our church talking ill of anyone else in our church or in another church, whether it's about myself, whether it's about another servant leader, whether it's about a first-time guest, I ask you right now, I plead with you right now, that you would call them out and shut them up. Because the unity of the church is too important. Look, man, you give me five weeks off from preaching, I'm gonna come back hot. <laughs> you go to that person, you say, whoa, excuse me, excuse me, who hurt you? Who offended you? Who slighted you? Who ignored you? Was it Jordan? Let's go talk to Jordan. Let's schedule an appointment. And, and I bet you any money that Jordan will, will apologize. He will get on his knees and we will pray together because the peace of God's church, the unity of God's church is too important. You think I'm joking about this stuff? You think I'm doing this for the money? No! Although I am rolling in it, you know. <laughs> You're like, I knew that. No, listen, it's too important. The Holy Spirit is grieved by slander and gossip. The scriptures say in the Old and the New Testament, He's grieved by it. In other words, he exits himself from those places and people. And so together as a church, we gotta be on the same page. Unity is just too important and last. And last, and equally as important, not more, not less, equally as important, prayer clears the path for the Holy Spirit in our life. In fact, prayer precipitated Pentecost. It came before. You want to be filled with more of the Spirit, pray and invite the Spirit into your life. In fact, just before the day of Pentecost, for 40 days in a row, it says in Acts 1.14, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus too. In other words, there were men and women gathering together and they took seriously, crying out to God. God, we want to see you move in our time. We despair at the thought that our lives might slip by without seeing you move mightily on our behalf. Carl Barth once wrote that only where the Spirit is sighed, cried, and prayed for does it become present and newly active. And so what would it look like then for you, Mom? For you, Dad? For you, student, young person? 
husband, wife, employer? What would it look like for you to pray? Come, Holy Spirit. We want more of you. There are a lot of things we don't have answers to in this world today. A lot of ways in which we feel so lost. You know who never feels lost? He, like Paul says, who knows the one in whom they believe. So come, Holy Spirit. Invade this place, invade these hearts, invade these people, invade our church. Because we despair at the thought that the next several decades together, our church would grow and there'd be buildings and new churches and new spaces and places and activities and people. And, but we wouldn't see you move mightily because we just simply said, it's not going to be about us. <laughs>